Gentlemen, uh, good morning to you. Others may be on spring break, but amen never takes a spring break. You just work right on through it. And while you're sitting on the beach next week, you punch that website and listen right in. Because we're going to talk about Corinth next week. And on your spring break, you may need a little, a little word from Corinth. We'll give it to you. Things are getting exciting with the Apostle Paul. You remember he had the desire to go up uh, to Bithynia in northern Turkey, and he couldn't go because the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him go. The Spirit of Jesus wanted him to go across the Aegean Sea to go from Asia to Europe. So Paul invaded Europe by the call of the Macedonian in his vision that said, come over and help us. So he came over and with Luke and with some others, Silas, uh, he began to preach in Philippi and there uh, led a business sales lady, a very successful woman apparently, to Christ. He led a demon-possessed slave girl to Christ and he led a jailer to Christ along with his whole family. He was abused there and he went on down to Thessalonica, the capital city, and they followed him there. He also went to Berea, where they actually opened up the Bible and listened to him carefully. Some people do that, you know. Some people actually are interested in new ideas and are willing to listen to various arguments, even that they've never heard before. And the people in Berea were a more noble people, says Luke. They checked everything the apostles said by the scriptures. They checked his reasoning to see if it was true. And then, of course, uh, trouble stirred up there, too. So they got Paul off out of Macedonia. Uh, I'm sure that they did not want to lose their good missionary, their A number one apostle. So they were trying to protect him. They got him out, but they stayed. Uh, Silas and Timothy stayed and ministered to the people there. Paul went on down to Athens, we were told. Uh, and that was about a 220-mile trek. We don't know exactly how much of it he would have done by foot, how much of it by sea, but... Probably a little of each, probably arrived in the port in Athens, and there he was all by himself. And, you know, I don't know about you, but if I'd been on a, you know, I've been on a short-term missions trip, you know, you go to some other place, maybe a poor country, and you've got all these parasites and bugs eating at you, and your intestines are not working correctly, and you're still in the wrong time zone, and you're worn out, and maybe you had some difficulties along the way, maybe you got sick on the trip, and you're just glad to be home, and you take about three days off just to recover from it. Well, that's, that's what I would have been doing, you know, if I got to Athens. Here is one of the most famous cities in all of world history, not just in Paul's time, but going back for 4,000 years before Paul. That, that city is 6,000 years old. And uh, it's a city that produced people like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and uh, Pericles and many, many others just uh, produced a, a a, a raft of great world thinkers and world leaders, philosophers, architects, artists, uh, politicians, uh, and it was still not. It was not in its original glory, the, the fourth century glory, but it still was a, a kind of the Boston, if you will, of of the Roman Empire. It was the educational center. It was where the intelligentsia still did all their debating and had schools of thought there. And uh, I don't know about, about you, but if, I, if I'd been in Paul's shoes, I, I think I would have taken a break. <laughs> you know, let's do Athens this week. 
And uh, that's, that's a, a point that John Stott brings up in his commentary, if you had a chance to read him. And he says, Paul didn't go there that way at all. He was still on mission, even when traveling by himself, even after having had some very rugged encounters in Macedonia and, of course, before that in uh, Asia Minor. Now, let's, let's look at the text, Romans, uh, I mean, uh, Romans, Acts uh, 17, verse 16, through the end of the chapter. And let's see what Paul did when he got to this great city. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for... In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Guys, I want us to notice in the, in the first uh, six verses that the gospel challenges idolatry. Uh, you'll hardly get a better example of it uh, in the New Testament than this. Of course, when we studied Deuteronomy, 
We saw how the gospel challenges idolatry, didn't we? We saw the people of God going into the into Canaan and cleansing it of the altars of Baal and Ashtaroth. So the gospel has always challenged idolatry. Here's why. An idol is something or someone put in the place of God that demands your primary devotion. So whatever it is you cherish, whatever it is in your life, as Rob Lydon prayed a moment ago, that determines your direction, that demands your devotion, in that sense it takes your worship, whatever it is you cherish the most, that's an idol unless it's the living God. So it's either God or it's what we call an idol. Eidolos in the Greek. So you can see how a gospel would challenge idols because the gospel comes proclaiming that God alone is Lord. That He is, as the psalmist said, God of the gods. He is in the pantheon of gods and He is chief God and the other gods, say the psalmist, are no gods at all. They're only pretenders. So what happens when the gospel comes into an idolatrous heart or an idolatrous culture, you're going to have fireworks. Because the idols are seeking to take your sacrifices, take your devotion, establish your worldview, and the gospel is coming in to change all of that completely. The ultimate goal of the gospel, the ultimate goal of the gospel is what? To bring glory to God alone. So in saving you from your sins, that's not the ultimate goal. That's a wonderful goal. It's a very loving goal of God. It is a goal to save you from the penalty that you deserve because of your sins. But the ultimate goal in doing that is to honor and glorify Him. And it's one of the reasons that we know that His salvation would never be taken from us. Why would He he defame His own name? He's glorifying His own grace by saving us. So He's not going to defame Himself by saving us and unsaving us and saving us and unsaving us. No, He he came to save us. And His own name and reputation is wrapped up in it. So here you have a gospel that goes into the world to glorify God. And that's His purpose. And that's the reason that international mission will continue until every soul is saved. And the reason is that God is being robbed of His glory by every soul that's worshiping an idol. And by every land that, that establishes temples for their gods. God is being robbed of His glory. He made that land. He made those people. And He deserves to be worshipped. So mission will always happen because the people of God who know Him know He deserves to be glorified everywhere. That's the ultimate goal for mission and for evangelism. So you can see the, the, the conflict we're going to have here. The idols seek to bring glory to themselves. Of course, they demean man and diminish His glory. But they seek to bring glory to themselves, and the gospel comes in taking glory from them and redirecting the glory to the living God. So the gospel challenges idolatry. Now, uh, as we all know, uh, in Hinduism, you could go to India now and see what I'm talking about. They actually do still have idolatry. They have idols before which they bow. In uh, Brahmin sort of uh, Hinduism... Uh, the kind of Hinduism we normally hear about, it's very philosophical. But uh, 
the Hinduism that actually exists is by and large a very popular Hinduism that is made up of 300 million gods. And every village has sort of its main god. And uh, those who have studied it, the Christians who have looked at it, really believe that there's demonic activity behind that and that there are demons associated with these gods. You say, well, they're, they're, you know, they're being a bunch of Pentecostals. Well, <clears throat> maybe, but uh, look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, he says demons are not, I mean, he says idols are nothing in some places, and yet in 1 Corinthians 10 he says, don't you know that behind the idols are demons? So the, the, idolatry is one of the most graphic illustrations of what demons, the, the demonic world would want to do with human beings. They want to get human beings detached from the one who made them and offers to redeem them and get these human beings attached to, to gods of, of stone and wood and gold and get, get the human beings who are made in his image to grasp onto the feet of rocks and, and look to them for their salvation and then the demons can destroy everybody. Uh, that's a perfect strategy. And that's what you can see that in India. If you've been there, uh, you can feel the darkness uh, that, that feels demonic. If you, if you know the Lord, you can feel the spiritual uh, presence of darkness. And then you look around, there are idols everywhere. And that's the reason that when Henry Martin, uh, the great missionary of 200 years ago, went to India, he saw all these idols. He said, it would be hell to me if Christ were always thus dishonored. And that's the way it is for anybody who knows the Lord and wants to promote his gospel. It is hell to us until he is honored as he ought to be honored. So, the gospel goes into an idolatrous world, and we have our idols. We don't have them of wood and stone. We have them of metal that turn into cars, and wood and stone turn into houses, and bank accounts, and reputations, and success. Those are our idols because those are the things we cherish, which we devote ourselves to, which actually organize our lives, and the paradigm of our entire lives in our culture is basically built around those, those idols. So we may say we're not an idolatrous country, but actually we are. We just change the types of the idols. The gospel comes into every culture and challenges its idols every time. Now, look how, <clears throat> look how this happens in verse 16. First of all, the gospel is provoked by idolatry. The gospel is provoked. If you have the gospel in your heart, you will be provoked. And so you don't just go do Athens. You don't just go do Memphis. No, you're seeing Athens and you're seeing Memphis. By the way, I grew up in Athens, Tennessee. So I want you to know I'm talking about the big Athens over there uh, across the Mediterranean. Uh, we, we don't just do Athens or do Memphis or do New York City. No, we, we see those cities as places of need. And we see those cities as places where God should be glorified. And the gospel within us is provoked. If you look at this word provoked... Uh, it's, it's a word from which we would get the word paroxysm. So Paul had a paroxysm when he went to Athens. It's a, it's a word uh, that, uh, the, that Luke, uh, the doctor, would have used for something like an epileptic uh, seizure, a paroxysm. So Paul had a spiritual seizure. He had, he was, uh, he had a paroxysm because he looked at what was happening, what, who was being worshipped in that city, and it was just rampant, it was just filled with gods. And you can see how he puts it. He says, the city, Luke says, was full of idols. Uh, if you looked at Stott, you noticed he, he gave the word, uh, it's um, K-A-T-A, 
in front of the word idol. So, kataidolos, which means, uh, kata means come, coming down. Uh, and so, basically, they were down under the gods. In other words, they were submerged in gods. There were just gods everywhere. It was just pervasively gods everywhere. Uh, one uh, ancient historian says that in those days, it was easier to find a god than it was a man in Athens. Now, Athens at that time had 45,000 residents, uh, we'll, so that makes it a, you know, a significant city. But what we'll see when we get to Corinth is that we're looking at 450,000 residents. That was a huge city. So Athens was not a major uh, population center. By this time, it had been in decline, but it had all still the great Acropolis. And, uh, and of course, if you've been to Athens, uh, you've seen the Acropolis, this hill that overlooks all of Athens. Um, and there on the Acropolis, you have uh, the great temple to Athena, uh, the Parthenon. And Parthenon comes from the word virgin. So Athena was the great virgin god who looked over Athens and cared for the city of Athens. The big god of Athens and all the gods of Olympus are in that temple of Athena. And it's quite a sight. And all of us have seen pictures of it uh, during the day and during the night. And, of course, now it's, it's being restored uh, in the 17th century, the Venetians had a nice little battle there against the Athenians, and they dropped a few bombs on top of a few missiles on top of the temple, unfortunately. But still, in what's left, it's absolutely magnificent. And uh, it was one of the wonders of the world. People would come all over to see that. And Paul came to Athens, and rather than being awestruck by the architectural beauty and splendor, which is truly great... He was struck with the fact that this is what these people are worshiping instead of the Creator. And he was, he was epileptic almost in his, in his response. Uh, so it was full of idols. And, uh, were we to visit Athens, uh, we might be fascinated with many things, uh, but Paul was provoked because of its idolatry. Now, secondly, Notice in verse 17 that Paul's response is not to go back to his hotel room and curl up in his bed and pull the covers up over his head and say, this city is wicked and I'm getting the heck out of here. No, the gospel is proclaimed to all. When Paul saw all the darkness, he didn't say, now I'll tell you what a good Christian man will do is just get out of here, get out of Dodge. No, he said this is, the, this is where the gospel needs to be proclaimed. And uh, if you've ever traveled internationally by yourself or been by yourself even for a few moments and you don't know the local language, although Paul here knew the local language, uh, he was fluent in Greek, but if you've ever been alone, you know how defenseless you feel. Uh, there, there's, there are anxieties that you never even thought about. You know, you're moving around in Memphis, everything's familiar, you've got friends everywhere, you know the highways, you read the signs, you know exactly what you're doing. You get in a strange place and nobody there to help you. There's this tremendous feeling of, of aloneness and isolation and fear. Paul didn't allow any of that to stop him, gentlemen. He, he's on mission. And if you're in Christ, you're on mission. And so you look at the darkness of a place and you say, what do I need to do here? And what he needed to do was to proclaim Jesus Christ. Go on the offensive. If you simply try to defend yourself from the darkness in the world, you're eventually going to be overwhelmed by it in one of two ways. You're either going to accommodate it and become like it so you can get along, 
or you're going to go into reaction against it and have no relationship to it and not be able to help them at all. What it takes is what we would call a holy engagement. You must be a holy man, but you must be engaged in your surroundings. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. So if you stay on offense, actually, that is the best defense. Once you move out of the gospel ministry, once you move out of being on the aggressive and on the offensive to change the environment around you, to seek to lead people to Christ and to make a difference in the world, then you become either overwhelmed or you become isolated. And neither of those is helpful at all, either for your soul or anybody else's. So notice Paul staying on offensive. He's on mission. And that's the best defense for his soul, is to keep proclaiming Christ, keep representing Him, keep being His man. That's your best, that's your best defense. And so he goes and proclaims to all. Where does he start? Same old place. He goes to the synagogue. If you go to Athens today and you go to the, you go just below the Acropolis down to the Agora, which was the marketplace, you'll find that much of that has been excavated. And Paul just went right down there in the marketplace and you'll find the footings of an old synagogue right there. So the synagogue was right in the marketplace. And Paul goes first of all, to God's Old Testament people, His people, to whom He made promises. And Paul goes to announce the, the fulfillment of the promises to them. When he sees the idolatry in Athens, his first instinct is to go to God's people and see how they're dealing with the idolatry, to encourage them. So he starts with the church in the midst of this idolatrous uh, city, goes to the synagogue, and there he reasons, as we saw that uh, before, how he reasoned and argued in the synagogue. And then look what else. And in the marketplace, verse 17, every day with those who happened to be there. So he would talk to anybody. <laughs> he would talk to a fence post about Jesus if you give him a chance. So if you're walking around the Agra and Paul's sitting there eating ice cream cone, guess what you're going to be talking about if you eat ice cream? So Paul would talk to anybody who would come to him. He wasn't just looking for the rich. He wasn't just looking for the poor. He was looking for anybody he could talk to about Jesus Christ. And he had his ways of engaging them in conversation. You can see that uh, in verse 17. He proclaimed it to all. But notice in verses 18 through 21, we come to the specific people that are focused upon in this text. And, and that would be the idolaters. And here we see the gospel is perplexing to idolaters. Now, the gospel challenges idolatry, but when idolatry is challenged, the idolaters are perplexed by it. They may be angry, but they're also confused. And let's see why this is. First of all, it seems nonsensical to them. It seems nonsensical. Uh, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now let's talk for a moment just about the schools of thought in Athens. By this time, and of course, you know, the, the Acropolis was, was basically built by Pericles. And that would be in the 4th century. So the, the Acropolis was about, that was almost 500 years old by the time Paul gets there. So it's, it's a, already an ancient uh, a museum piece, if you will, the Parthenon, by the time Paul gets there. The, I'm sorry, not the Acropolis. The Parthenon on the Acropolis was built uh, about 500 years before Paul. The great schools of thought, you know, from Aristotle and Plato, Socrates, had eventually formed into about four schools of thought. Uh, you had the Stoics, and the word Stoic just comes from the word stoa, which means porch, which means they sat around and talked on the porch a lot. There were some beautiful stoas in the agora. 
And the Stoics uh, believed that uh, the universe was basically determined uh, by fate. And uh, man's responsibility was simply to do his duty and to find a way to live within reason and within the forces of nature. So the gods were an expression of this fate that had determined uh, our trajectory. And, of course, the founder of Stoicism was a man named Zeno. They also were pantheistic, uh, which means that uh, uh, everything is God. So uh, God is spirit, but what the matter is actually an expression of God himself, so that, in fact, we, we too are gods. We're, we're all part of God. There's one great one. You know, this is typical Eastern religion. So you can see they were fatalistic, they were pantheistic, and they were duty-oriented. And the goal of man was basically virtue, said the Stoic. Now, Paul had read the Stoics fairly extensively. We'll see this in a moment. And in Christian ethics, you will find a lot of parallels with Stoics. Now, we differ from the Stoics. Uh, we, we don't have time to go into this, but that was one of the schools of thought. And then another school was the Epicureans, you see listed here. Uh, and the Epicureans uh, were founded by a man named Epicurus. And it was, they were contemporaries of, of uh, Zeno and the Stoics. This would be 3rd century B.C. And they taught, rather than fate, they were the free will people, <laughs> They, they were the ones who said that everything is a result of chance. Just atoms bouncing around. The basic elements of the universe bouncing around arbitrarily. And that the gods, rather than being expression of fate and actually controlling things, the gods were very distant, had no interest in what's going on on our earth. And they were saying ethically the proper response to this is eat, drink, and be merry. Now, everyone in this room would probably naturally tend to be either a Stoic or an Epicurean based on your personality. But the Epicureans basically said the the proper response for a human being is just to seek his own pleasure. So the Epicureans, and this is a kind of a simplistic way to look at it, but the Epicureans basically were seeking pleasure and the Stoics were basically seeking virtue. So they were at war with each other all the time philosophically. Now, there were two other schools of thought that are not mentioned here, the Cynics and the Skeptics. We won't get into them. But they, they basically, all four of these schools had been in play for about 300 years by the time Paul comes around. So the philosophical schools of thought are fairly well established and Paul just drops down right into the middle of this university. Uh, and having himself been largely trained by the Stoics. Well, notice, they think this is nonsensical. They just, what is this babbler talking about? It doesn't, neither one of these schools, these famous schools of thought, have categories to handle what Paul is talking about. He differs from both of them. And we'll see that what really seems to be babbling to them is something about a dead man coming back to life and... Being the new Zeus, the, 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 the Lord of the Lords and the God of the Gods. And what is all this about? It's nonsense. Resurrection from the dead? Crazy. 
And so if what you have to say to smart people seems like nonsense, don't be surprised. Uh, Until you're born again, until the Holy Spirit gives you new life that then enables your mind to think according to the categories of the Creator and Redeemer of the universe, you don't have categories for a resurrection. It does seem like nonsense. And you will call people babblers. I called them something similar to that myself before I was converted. I know what this feels like. And secondly, notice, uh, others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. It seems foreign. Now, uh, this is what Socrates was charged with 450 years before this. To be, uh, you know, an atheist. To be professing foreign gods. That was a, that could be a capital crime. Because if you profess foreign gods, it's actually unpatriotic. And every culture feels that way. Every culture has its gods and you come in and challenge those gods, you're not being patriotic. One of the great criticisms of Christians in the next century was that they were atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods and they didn't worship the Caesar. So they were contrary to the domestic gods. They were someone coming from the outside and therefore they were a danger and a risk to society. So don't be surprised if people say, where'd you get that idea? That's, that's, done, that's not American. That's not what the American church believes. Well, it's actually not oftentimes. But, and it seems foreign. Don't be surprised. That's exactly what they said about the Apostle Paul. Thirdly, it seems strange. Notice they say, for you bring some strange things to our ears. Verse 20 and 21. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, look where they take him. Uh, look, it says here, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus in verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. What is Areopagus? Well, the word pagus, from which we get the word pagan, means hill. And the word arrow comes from Ares, the god Ares, or we would know the Roman equivalent, which is uh, Mars. So they took him to the hill of Mars, Mars Hill. You know, in, in my town of Athens, Tennessee, where I grew up, yeah, the Presbyterian church there is called Mars Hill Presbyterian Church. And it's up on a hill. <laughs> it's not really the original Mars Hill, I have to say again. But why did they take him to Mars Hill? Well, if you've been to the Acropolis, you know if you come down off the Acropolis, then there's a little hill right there called Mars Hill. And that is where the god of Mars uh, was worshipped. It was also where the council of Athens would meet and discuss things in the city. There's no real equivalent for the council, the Areopagus. They would be a combination of a university faculty executive committee, a city council, and the local police. Something like that. It's hard to describe what it actually is. It's a political and intellectual group. Because in Athens, of course, the ones who would be the rulers would be the philosophers, correct? It's the center of philosophers. You expect the ones who were given the political power were the thinkers. And so that's the reason it's a strange combination. So they were very familiar with philosophical categories, philosophical questions. They were in these debates all the time. And they could also determine 
whether a person was able to stay in Athens or not stay in Athens. Now, you'll notice after this, Paul leaves Athens and it doesn't tell us he was kicked out. I generally assume that he was kicked out. And the Areopagus had the power under the Roman Empire to do that. Now, the Romans had great respect for Athens. Uh, Caesar Augustus uh, had his temple actually built also on the Acropolis next to the Temple of Athena. So they gave honor to the Athenian gods. And, of course, the Roman gods were just the parallels of the uh, gods of Greece. And so the Romans allowed the Athenians to function uh, with a lot of local rule. And so this Areopagus had the power to dismiss people from their city. So this is a serious encounter. It's a serious intellectual encounter. It's really a serious political encounter as well. And they take him to the Areopagus uh, to quiz him there. Now, notice then, in verses 22 through 31, this is Roman numeral 2, that the gospel not only challenges idolatry, but it challenges the philosophical strongholds behind idolatry. So if we're correct that our idols are largely manipulated by demonic activity, we also have to realize that in between that is an intellectual framework. So if, if I want to be successful and I want that to be legitimate, I will develop an entire philosophy of life that validates that God. So what you have then in, in any false worship or any, you know, any of the things that your life is or has been involved in, you've got the false God itself, you've got an intellectual framework or philosophical framework that justifies your devotion to that God, and then behind that, down at the deepest level, you've got this spiritual, we would call it demonic, uh, activity promoting the entire enterprise. Well, here we're at the philosophical level. Okay, we're at that middle level, the intellectual level. And you'll notice the gospel very much challenges here. Leave your finger in Acts 17, but go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and see what Paul says to the Corinthians about this matter. This is on page 2193, 2193. And here the apostle says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, it's stupidity to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So you see what God is saying? I will take, what's philosophy? Philos means love, Sophia means wisdom, the love of wisdom. Here's what God says in the Old Testament. I'm going to destroy the love of wisdom, man's wisdom. My message, my lifestyle, my reality is going to demolish all that men can devise to justify their going after these false gods. In verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So God makes foolish philosophy. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Here we are, right in Greece. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, page 2235. Some years later, Paul is still talking about how the church is seduced by these eloquent speakers who try to merge Christ into the philosophies of their own day. Sound familiar? They get on TV with a great hairdo, and they can just merge Christ right in to your getting, having great success and driving a big car. They just, they just, they merge them. It's called syncretism. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's blending two religions, the religion of success and the religion of Jesus Christ. And, and so Paul has to keep arguing with these crazy Corinthians because they love to merge stuff because they love to be successful. They're into money and they're into sex and they're into power. And so he's constantly have to argue with them. And look what he says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. He's talking about how, how we deal with this. Well, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We don't make fancy speeches. But have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So you see what Paul is saying? The gospel has an intellectual power and it takes hold of the human mind and gets it right side up and gets it moving in the right direction and thinking in the right way. And the gospel itself then defeats all these alien intellectual powers. Now, let's look at verses 22 and 23. I want us to notice, first of all, the gospel respects unbelievers. Now, there's warfare going on here. There's intellectual warfare. There's spiritual warfare going on. But there's not going to be physical warfare. And Paul is going to show due respect for the people to whom he's talking. And I don't care who they are. And I've already talked about several different groups of people. It doesn't matter who they are. We're to show them respect. How does Paul do that? First of all, he shows respect for their religious culture. So Paul, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. <laughs> and now there's the understatement of the world. But he turns it into a way to say, We've got common ground. I recognize you're a very religious people. And they would have said, Well, after all, uh, we have a great legacy. Paul's acknowledging that. In, in a certain way. And it's important for us to acknowledge it. Uh, in fact, I remember, I, I may have told some of you that a few years ago I was in Jordan and we had invited, this was right after um, the invasion of Iraq. And we had invited uh, the evangelical pastors in Iraq and at that time there were about maybe 15 of them. And they were from all the cities, Mosul, Baghdad and so on. And they came across the border just to get a break, for one thing, because they were obviously under per- great persecution. And they came with their wives, and we put them up in a retreat, and then we just taught the Bible, prayed together. And uh, one of the speakers was old uh, Pastor Emeritus from Casa Labara Church in Cairo, uh, Dr. Manis Abdul-Nur. And uh, Dr. Manis is just an absolutely wonderful Christian. He's sort of the Billy Graham of the Middle East. And his topic for the week was evangelizing Muslim background people. Man, was I ever interested in that. Because Dr. Manis has led uh, hundreds, literally, of Muslim background people 
to faith in Jesus Christ at the risk of his own life, uh, having had guns pointed at his head and the trigger pulled and the trigger jammed. <laughs> He's had all kinds of experiences like that and been jailed and all the rest. So uh, I was getting a rough uh, partial translation, but I was getting enough to notice two distinctive things about his presentation. Number one was, when you're a Christian in a minority country, you're in the minority in the country, you speak very humbly. If you don't, you'll be shot. <laughs> so, and it was very endearing. And I realized that Christians in America speak from the top down because we have so much power. And our message sounds so condescending and judgmental. I'm better than you are. And uh, Dr. Manisa's approach was very different. He always showed respect. And when someone would call him stupid, he would say, yes, of course I'm stupid. But what I want to talk to you about is, and he would just go right on. There was an amazing gentleness and kindness and humility in what he said. And I realized, you know what? We need to take a page out of the Middle Eastern evangelical strategy. The second thing I noticed, it was very stark. In his Muslim evangelism, he rarely ever quotes the Bible. You know what he quotes? The Quran. He knows it backwards and forwards. He knows it better than any Muslim he's probably ever talked to, including the Imam. And he knows where the contradictions are. He knows what questions to ask. Why does the Quran say this here and say this here? What sense do you make of that? If the Quran says that Jesus is a prophet, why wouldn't Jesus be the one you would trust to tell you the truth? He just has all kinds of things. He's just immersed in the Quran. He knows it very well. Now look at the Apostle Paul. Where did Menes get that? Here. Acts 17. That's where he got it. Paul says, I see that you're a very religious people. And then he starts to quote stoic philosophers. Do you see a scripture verse in here? No. You see stoic philosophers in here. And Paul happens to have studied them himself very thoroughly. Paul was an educated man. He was a cultivated, cultured man. And he uses their language. Now, some criticize this sermon that we're going to look at uh, in a few minutes because they don't see the cross in it. Well, a couple of things, guys. Number one, we don't have the whole sermon. We have Luke's condensation of the sermon. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I just read it a moment ago. Well, I didn't actually. I read right before where he says, I choose to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You think that Paul, oops, forgot to talk about the cross. You know, you think Paul didn't share the cross with them? We know he talked about the resurrection. How do you talk about a resurrection unless you die first, you know? So it's in, is undoubtedly in there. But the other thing I want you to recognize is that our evangelism is sequential. If you'll look at Tim Keller's book, A Reason for God, you find two halves of the book. The second half is really on the core of the gospel that has to do with redemption. The first half has to do largely with arguments against Christian theism. It's more philosophical. What's Tim doing? All he's doing is telling you how he's evangelized people in New York. They don't have categories for a crucifixion and a resurrection that would give us salvation. There are no, no categories in the secular mind. So Tim starts first with where they are and the way they think with literature that they read. And then he leads them to realize, oh, so there's plausibility for this. Oh, so now I see there are categories for this. And then within those categories, then he shares the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. 
So don't critique Paul because he doesn't give as thorough an explanation of the crucifixion, the resurrection, the return of Christ, and how we must repent and so on. He is just simply establishing plausibility for the gospel on a philosophical level. Now, we don't do it as high a level as the Apostle Paul does. We're not as well-trained, most of us, in philosophy as he was. We're not as solid a theologian as he is. But in our own popular way, in whatever learning we have, you know, all of us are dealing in a much more popular way. So we just deal with people with their common, ordinary objections and concerns. And you have to realize you need to hang in there with them and help them to see there's maybe another way to think about this. And you move them toward the gospel and then you share the gospel. That's the strategy here. And I just noticed that's exactly what Manis did. Now, do you know, after the Muslim would say to Manis, well, what's the answer for all these problems? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit more about the prophet Jesus. Did you know there's a book about him? Oh, yes, I've, I've heard of that. Well, would you like to start reading maybe something of people who knew him personally? Well, that would be a good idea. Well, let's start here then. You see, you see the strategy. So you don't hit someone over the head with a Bible when they have no categories for it. We patiently, respectfully, intellectually respectfully, personally respectfully, engage our friends. We don't look at all of their movies, but we look at the, the movies we can look at so that we understand the culture around us. My dear friend, John Wood, who's pastor of Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, he had been trained in a Christian home. He was in the Navy, and he did a lot of things that Navy people do. And he went off the ranch. He came back out of the Navy, still off the ranch. His brother, Bill, uh, a, a retired surgeon, uh, was a strong believer. Bill was uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, he was very busy doing a fellowship. He had lots of things to do in his young medical practice. But his little brother was not converted. And his little brother was reading some of the most raucous novels and other things, philosophical works that were kind of dark, things that Bill never would read. But guess what Bill started reading? He got the reading list from his little brother. And he just started reading what his brother was reading. And when they went to lunch, Bill could just ask a few questions. What do you think about that character in that novel, about what he did and what he said? And Bill would begin to bring out the overall outlook of that author and ask a few critical questions about it. Now, gentlemen, that's what you call love. Taking the time and the care to read the literature of the people that you want to reach for Christ, understanding how they're thinking, sympathizing with them, understanding there is a certain plausibility structure that they bought into. And you need to understand that plausibility structure. And then you need to understand what's wrong with it. Where is it inherently contradictory that any reasonable person would have to grant? And then you can show them those inherent contradictions. Now, this is the kind of thing the Apostle Paul is doing. Not because he hates the Athenians. Yes, he's provoked and he hates the demons. He doesn't hate the Athenians. He loves them. That's the reason he doesn't flee from them and he doesn't throw rocks at them. And he doesn't go over to Corinth and talk about the Athenians. No, he sticks in there with the Athenians and tries to understand them and love them. And that's what you've got to do in your workplace. Sometimes you get so frustrated. You know, it's great to go to church and just finally on the Lord's Day just take a break from it, you know. Just be in the sanctuary of God. And you need to do that. But then you've got to go out Monday 
having had that spiritual rest and physical rest, you go out Monday and rather than complaining that you're thrown among the wolves, why don't you convert a couple of wolves into lambs? That's our job. Understand the wolves. Watch yourself, but seek to understand them and lead them to the shepherd. So he shows great respect for their religious culture. He also shows respect for their intellectual history in verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that God. (laughs) Is that not ingenious? Now, don't stretch it too far and say, well, Paul was giving credibility to these pagan gods and telling them that that Jesus was just another pagan god. That's not what he was doing. He was just simply using it as a launching pad. He was using it to get their attention. He was using it for them to say, you know, there are some things you don't know. You don't even know some of your own gods. I do know God. (laughs) Let me tell you about what you don't know. And then he leads them to the gospel, and here's what we see in verses 24 through 31. The gospel reveals God. The gospel respects unbelievers, but it reveals God. How does it reveal God? What is he going to say about God? How is he going to address their philosophical framework? How is he going to build categories that help them understand the need for the gospel? So that when he tells them that Christ died on a tree, naked, cursed, in our place, so that we would go free from the burden of sin. How is, he gonna, how is that going to make sense to them? Well, first of all, they have to understand who God is. So first of all, he tells them, the God who made the world. He's the creator. He made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And gentlemen, let me tell you something. This God who exists is so great. He doesn't live in your temples. He's too great for the Acropolis. He doesn't live in the temple of Athena. This is how great he is. He's greater than Zeus. Zeus has temples. God doesn't live in temples. He made it all. Okay, good starting point, huh? Genesis 1. And that's the reason, gentlemen, that you need to be sure you understand what the Bible says about creation. You need to delight yourself in it, and then you need to discuss it with people who don't get it. It's important. Without God as creator, you'll never understand the gospel. That's where Paul starts. That's the reason that in our public discourse, we need to be respectful, intellectually respectful, culturally respectful, but we need to engage these arguments. They are important because the next generation will not get the gospel. They'll distort the gospel. That God just kind of loves everybody. Oh, he wouldn't put someone on a cross to pay for a sin. That's barbaric. He just basically loves people. So if you, if you remove him as creator to whom you're accountable, you'll remove any necessity for the cross. You'll completely misunderstand the gospel. Secondly, God is the sustainer, nor is he served by human hands. You all go in there and you think you're sustaining these gods by feeding them meat offered to them in the, in the uh, uh, sacrifice of the altars. He says, God's not like that. <laughs> you don't sustain God. He sustains you. We Everything, every life, every breath, Everything comes from Him. Thirdly, He's the ruler. You don't have gods who are the God of Athens and the God of Rome and the God of Antioch. There's one God and He puts people where He wants to put them. And why does He put them there? Well, verse 27 through 29, as a father, He wants you to seek God. He puts you all over the place so that you would seek Him and so that you would find Him. 
And you've been groping around trying to find this God I'm talking to you about. And what you did was you stopped short. You created your own gods and didn't finish the search. Let me tell you, God is not far away from you. We are made in His likeness. And he quotes two Stoic philosophers here. Not the Bible. He quotes Stoic philosophers they're familiar with. And he says, they even say to you, it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. It, It is they who tell you that we are the offspring of God. Well, if we're the offspring of God, how is it that we bow down before stone and wood? Please explain that to me. doesn't make any sense. If we're the offspring of God, if we're made in His image, then we ought to be looking to Him, not to these gods of stone. You see how he's making his arguments. And then fifthly, he says, God is the judge, verse 30 and 31. You're not going to judge yourselves. You needn't fear these, these God of Mars or the God Jupiter or God Zeus, or any of these other gods, Athena, you must fear the living God, the God who made all, all that is, including the wood and the stone out of which you made your gods. And He's the judge over all, and He has appointed a man. Here you go. Here's Jesus. Now comes in Jesus. Jesus is the judge because God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, appointed God the Son to be the judge of all the earth. And God the Son has the blessing of the triune God upon Him. He's filled with the Spirit. The Father loves Him. He is the judge. So Paul now has built a paradigm to talk about this. And he goes right into the resurrection. You see it here. And that of this, He has given assurance to us all. Here's how we know this is all true. He was raised from the dead. So after that, we come to verses 32 through 34. We've got three minutes. Let's finish up here. And we see not only the gospel challenges idolatry and philosophical strongholds, but the gospel saves philosophers and idolaters. You thought philosophers couldn't be saved. Well, let me tell you something. It is true, verse 32a, that some mock. Of course they mock. They have their categories. They've been to graduate school. They've spent 30 years teaching. They're old geezers like me, and they're not about to throw away their entire learning that they've had for 50 years and adopt some crazy idea that you've got. And so they just make fun of you. Of course, people who are narrow-minded will make fun of those who have new ideas. But notice in verse 32b and 33, some will listen. So some mocked. But gentlemen, some listen. Some actually will take out the book you're talking about, the Bible, and they will examine it with you. Some actually will have the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart even as you speak. And you must trust this. That as foolish as what you say sounds to a lot of people, there are some who are the recipients of the gracious work of God in their hearts so that they they are enlightened and they will listen to what you say. And thirdly, notice, some actually believe. Some, not all. Some will believe. And those who believe, guess who they are? They are your eternal brothers and sisters who are grateful to you for coming and sharing the good news with them. And you will go through a lot to get there to them. You will face the mockers. You'll face some who listen and give every appearance of being reasonable and then tell you you're an idiot. You'll go through a lot of trouble and travail to reach the some that will be saved. And let's see who the some are. Number one, a man Dionysius. And guess what he is? A member of the Areopagus. 
and you thought that you couldn't talk to anybody at Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Rhodes College or University of Memphis about anything. Dionysius was a member of the Areopagus, the intellectual center of the world, and he was converted. And he happened to become the bishop of Athens in time. And a woman named Damaris. And that's how things started in Athens. And there was a church there that Dionysius led because one day a man who was all by himself in a strange city who had been beaten up for months decided that the right thing for him to do was to continue to proclaim the gospel no matter what it cost him. And he went through a lot of philosophical rubbish and he took a lot of heat and he became the scum of the earth in everybody's eyes, but he reached that one man. What do you think Dionysius thought of the Apostle Paul? Same thing we think. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great gospel. And we grieve over the friction and conflict that it costs us in this generation. We look forward to a day when we'll live in a gospel environment. Everything will be completely gospelized. There will be no more conflict. There will be no more uh, provocations. There will only be peace and love and joy. And in this day when we have our opportunity to reach Dionysius and Damaris, we pray that you'll help us out of love of Christ and love of lost people to go and serve in our idolatrous generation. Lord, help us to be sensitive to the things around us, but especially sensitive to you and sensitive to your people who are still lost but who are yet to be found. And enable us to carry out the gospel ministry in our day through Jesus Christ. Amen. Bless you all.